Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The federal constitution requires that a census is conducted every 10 years and that political districts must be redrawn in order to maintain some equality in the number of people who populate each political district. The authority to actually redraw the political district is left to the majority party to conduct and few rules exist to guide that process other than the will of the drafters. As a result, most redistricting results in some measure of gerrymandering, where the political body, which are conducting the line drawing, will typically create boundaries which are designed to protect their majority status. During the past 10 years, the 2010 legislative and congressional redistricting maps in North Carolina were successfully challenged several times because of both racial and partisan gerrymandering. These successful legal challenges resulted in the General Assembly having to redraw these lines after each successful lawsuit. In December of 2021, the General Assembly adopted new redistricting lines for the State House and Senate and for congressional seats. Those plans were immediately challenged in the Wake County Superior Court as extreme partisan gerrymandering. These districts, if confirmed, will be in place in North Carolina for the next 10 years. And just this week, the three-judge panel, which reviewed evidence presented by the plaintiffs in this case, issued a ruling which concluded that the plans were extreme, partisan, gerrymandered. They condemned the practice, but held that they did not violate North Carolina law. It is anticipated that this decision will be appealed to the North Carolina Supreme Court. During tonight's discussion, we will dissect the redistricting process, its history, the applicable law, and how it impacts the rights of citizens to vote for representatives of their choice. So joining us for this discussion is Attorney Allison Riggs, the co-executive director and chief counsel for voting rights of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. Attorney Riggs is one of the leading litigators in this country in voting rights cases, and is engaged in the present challenges to the North Carolina redistricting plan. So, Attorney uh, Riggs, uh, thank you for uh, joining with us. Thank you, professors, for having me uh, to talk about this timely topic and um, get your li listeners more engaged in understanding of what's happening right now. Okay. Well, we thank you for uh, your work uh, over the years and certainly your work that you are engaged in uh, and now, so, uh, but let me let me just start out uh, this uh, this discussion with uh, a personal uh, inquiry. Uh, how and why uh, 
did you become interested in litigating voting rights cases? That's a great, great question. Um, in I'd been politically involved. I was living and working in Florida and, and had become politically involved. I decided to go to law school. And like many law students during their first week of law school, I didn't know anyone. I went to all of the, the opening meetings that groups have trying to to find a place, find a niche, find some something that, that called to me. And I attended a restoration of civil rights uh, clinic meeting. It wasn't a clinic for credit. It was something that um, a professor uh, was running in her spare time. Um, and she want, wanted students to help uh, those who had been permanently uh, removed of their civil rights in Florida to help them uh, petition to have their civil rights restored. And in Florida, that permanent disenfranchise, that per permanent removal of civil rights included not only the right to vote, run for office, serve on uh, juries, but to receive state licensure. And so um, that for me is, is where I saw how personal the political is and the way in which um, exclusion from democracy impacts folks in so many different ways that I hadn't fully appreciated um, coming at it from a more political angle. I mean, I grew up in a, a union state where, you know, I definitely understood the power of politics and organizing, but um, that's where I started understanding what what political participation means and how it can affect um, folks' daily lives and the policies that get set affecting folks' daily lives. And so that was where I wanted to start engaging in community lawyering um, and voting rights and redistricting um, just sort of fell naturally into that. If you talk, it, it's impossible in my mind to not to separate voter suppression from voter dilution, the way in which we draw district lines is about silencing and suppressing the vote and the value of the vote of communities that are the target of discrimination. Um, and so I was lucky enough to have a few uh, summer internship opportunities where I got to come to North Carolina and learn a lot about redistricting. And I feel like I've understood um, had a good framing joining the Southern Coalition for Social Justice about the interrelationship between attacks on um, part political participation and the policies that ensue from having political participation undermined. We have, um, you know, we have economic injustice, you know, in every ounce of our history and our being and um, the ability to to correct that um, is impeded when we have gerrymanders and when we have voter suppression. And I think they're, they're two pieces that need to be understood and as working in close uh, conjunction with each other. And, and, and how long have you been with the, uh, the uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice? Since 2009, so 13, 13 years now. Wow, you are... Uh, ready for retirement now. <laughs> it's uh, it's my second redistricting cycle, so it's it's you know this is a high burnout field. Um, so it's not like you uh, 
Professor Joyner's uh, been through uh, a few rounds, so he's he's tough, but it's hard work. Um, the courts have, especially the federal courts, have been unfriendly to to thinking about how to remedy, um, in in particular, intentional discriminatory actions in redistricting, and so it it is challenging, but. Um, I'm encouraged that there are more and more young attorneys that want to get into this fight. And I think that as, you know, practitioners and professors, we, we can do um, and learn more about how to support them in staying sustainable and committed in this work. Now, since uh, engaging in this, in this work, what, what type of voting rights cases uh, have, you, uh, have you had? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, um, in in the sense of loving the the practice and and being so moved by the importance of it, I've I've been lucky that mine has been a very diverse voting rights practice. So I'm pretty sure I have litigated every kind of redistricting claim <laughs> that can be litigated um, under state constitutions in North Carolina and Tennessee and Florida. Um, under the federal constitution, under the Voting Rights Act, um, intentional discrimination, one person, one vote cases, pretty much the the gamut. Um, we do essentially every kind of voter suppression case you can imagine, fighting cuts to early voting, same day registration, um, uh, voter ID laws, voter purges, um, uh, and then do direct representation because one of our initiatives is naming and under naming and building up a support system to to support black candidates who face um, grossly disproportionate um, attacks to their eligibility to their candidacy and to their ability to govern once elected because of the color of their skin. So looking at defending them against residency challenges, candidacy challenges, these are administrative processes before the um, the county boards of elections, the state board of elections, and it happens um, across the South. And then lastly, doing work um, combating criminalization of the ballot box. So we see efforts to um, push folks who are helping to either participating or helping voters to participate into uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's prosecuting voters who voted um, not knowing that they were ineligible because of a felony conviction or not knowing that they hadn't fully attained citizenship status yet to uh, prosecuting um an amazing, an amazing black woman in Georgia who was registering voters uh, and allegedly violated state laws in how she was helping to register her neighbors and her her friends. And this is this is the criminalization of the ballot box, particularly when voters of color either want to be heard or help others be heard. Um, taking a criminal justice system that already targets them and and pointing it at them to punish them for political participation is an, is another deeply um, troubling threat that we're actively combating. Attorney Riggs, so you've mentioned a number of different types of voting rights 
uh, litigation. And I don't know if the general public understands how long it takes to resolve these cases. And can you just talk about that? And in talking about that, can you also share why that makes the work so much more challenging? I can. Um, so, for example, in the Texas redistricting case where I was representing the Texas NAACP last cycle, we filed our complaint in 2011, and the case didn't wrap up until 2019, and we're still arguing about attorney's fees from that case. So it is, it is we're now on year 11 of that case. Um, it requires an enormous investment of time and money. I mean, these are cases that require expert testimony. Um, and, you know, most of the people who've worked on that case with me have have cycled through whatever organization they were working at uh, on that. Um, here in North Carolina, the, the monster voter law that Professor Joyner and I both litigated the bill was passed in 2013 and it wasn't until 2017 that we had a denial of cert from the u.s supreme court so that sounds like a shorter period but i think you have to step back to and recognize the first voter id law came in 2011 <coughs> it was vetoed by governor bev purdue and you know the next gubernatorial campaign was essentially about voter id and then governor or then candidate Pat McCrory campaigning that he would sign a voter ID law. And even after we win that voter ID case in 2017, when the U.S. Supreme Court declines to take it up in the Fourth Circuit's ruling invalidating its stands, we know it's not over yet. The next year, the legislature um, rams through some very odd constitutional amendments to put on the ballot, very vague, very misleading. Um, and when North Carolina voters narrowly approve this very vague constitutional amendment in a lame duck session, the legislature rams through um, the specifics. Um, and this is the same legislature that had a supermajority that was just um, destroyed by voters. So voters said, we don't want you, uh, this particular Republican supermajority, we don't want you making this law. And they did it in lame duck session anyway. Um, and so we've filed a new lawsuit and we're still litigating that. So, I mean, what what folks have to understand is, is that this is a, um, it's a, I mean, it is the, the, those who would suppress the vote are recognize the changing demographics, the changing politics, and they're, you know, they're fighting for their political lives and doing so by entrenching their power and excluding others. So it's not a noble fight, um, but it means it's a desperate one and it won't it won't let up. Um, so we constantly have to be prepared to just be in in litigation all of the time. Um, some of these s sneaky voter purge cases come out of nowhere and are don't receive a lot of press and they can be targeted at counties that might be inclined to settle um, a lawsuit because they don't have the capacity to litigate it the way they, it, the way it should be. Um, so monitoring all of those and, and, and trying to stay on top of them is, it is relentless, but 
part of what gives me hope is that the you know the desperation level seems to be getting worse and worse and i think that's because the the recognition is is that this country's demographics and politics are changing certainly not um and and our our politics changing obviously doesn't mean that our hearts and minds are changing the way that we need them to be but uh the desperation is real and i i hold on to that as um a sense that ultimately our cause is just and right and that if we can stick on top of um these nefarious shenanigans for a little bit longer voters will will ultimately be able to have their voices heard you know some of you know for our audience and and other uh can you kind of talk about how the uh, the redistricting process works uh, at the uh at the legislative level because you know some people uh might think that uh moses comes down from on high with the tablets uh, in uh, both arms and holds them up, and then that's uh, how it is, uh, how those maps are created. Uh, but can you kind of just walk us through uh, just how that process uh, works and then uh, uh, how that process has been used uh, in uh, in North Carolina? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and um, I'm going to just step in real quick because we're about to take a break, and, and I want to make sure that we get a chance to hear your um, very, I'm sure, helpful um, answer to Professor Joyner's question. Uh, but you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with attorney Allison Riggs. She is the co-executive director and chief counsel for voting rights of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We will be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU's School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our discussion with Attorney uh, Allison Riggs about the uh, North Carolina redistricting uh, process. And when we took our break, uh, the question was posed to Attorney Riggs as to how the uh, redistricting process works uh, and what has uh, or how has that been used. Uh, here in uh, in North Carolina. So, uh, Attorney Riggs, uh, you now had a few minutes to think about it. Uh, so, uh, educate our audience. Absolutely. So, every decade, what we call decennial redistricting um, 
or once a decade redistricting is triggered by the release of the federal census that also happens once a decade. It happens in the year ending in zero. Um, and hopefully we all um, got counted last year because of the pandemic, because of some um, shenanigans engaged in by the um, Trump administration last year uh, with at a, trying to add a citizenship question. Um, the delay, the census data was released later than it normally is. So in a year ending in one after a census, you usually get the census data in a rolling fashion across the states in the late winter, early spring. So in 2011, I think we got our census data in March. This, uh, this cycle, so last year we got it later, we didn't get it um, until August and then formatted properly in September. Uh, once the legislature receive in North Carolina, once the legislature receives the census data, um, the legislature uh, sets up two, two committees, one in the House and one in the Senate. Generally, the Senate um, works on Senate maps, the House works on House maps, and they collaborate together on congressional maps. Uh, because of population growth, North Carolina got an extra congressional seat this cycle. So those maps uh, had to change pretty dramatically. Uh, the committees, despite our urging to get started sooner, um, the committees didn't do much until um, until August. Uh, we wanted public hearings scheduling, scheduled earlier and uh, criteria set earlier. That was not stuff that was needed to wait on the release of the of the census data, but those um, those requests fell on uh, unlistening ears. And so in, in August, uh, the committees were set, they started meeting, they adopted some criteria, um, two of which may be of particular interest to your listeners. One was they said, we're not going to consider or take into account any political data in the drawing of these district lines, um, allegedly, you know, to sort of insulate them from claims of partisan gerrymandering. And the other was, we're not going to use or consider racial data at all um, in the drawing of district lines, allegedly to insulate them from claims of racial gerrymandering. But the reality is, is that if you are a politician in North Carolina, if you are a state legislature, you know which precincts perform for you or perform for your opponent. You know where voters, uh, black voters, uh, brown voters, white voters live in your district, in your county, in your community. Um, so it's really farcical to say that you, you know, you can do this race blind or, or partisan blind because we know you can't. You can't unsee that which you have seen. Um, and member, many members of the North Carolina legislature, especially the legislative leadership, the controlling party, were part of the 2011 redistricting process where um, 2011 and 2016, where they both uh, were they racially, grossly racially gerrymandered and then grossly partisan gerrymandered. So they had seen all of this data, albeit a little bit outdated. So they set these criteria, they claimed to, to say we are going to do all map drawing out in public at public terminals with a live stream video. And so it's going to be the, and I quote, most open and transparent 
process in North Carolina history, end quote. Um, it is true that there were four public terminals and that they were live streamed. Uh, it was very hard to see who was drawing and hear who was talking. Uh, the chairs refused to um, regulate what people brought in and out of the room. So we saw people coming in to draw maps, carrying huge stacks of papers um, that could have contained all kinds of political or racial data. Uh, the chairs refused to do anything to enforce this criteria. And we learned just in the last few weeks that Representative Dustin Hall had a set of maps he called concept maps drawn by an aide outside the public terminal. Um, and he was consulting them, using them as a game plan for drawing house districts and that his aide would bring into the public terminal uh, pictures of those concept maps on his phone and show them to Representative Hall as he drew. So I think it's pretty clear that this open and transparent process was um, a sham uh, and was meant to mislead the public. I'll, I'll also note that Representative Hawkins from Durham, Representative Morey from Durham, um, uh, and so many others asked Representative Hall to his face, were outside maps drawn or consulted in this process? And he said no every time. Um, so he misled his colleagues. He misled the public. And this is the process that we are supposed to believe was, the, was not only the most open and transparent, but um, was constitutional. Now, <clears throat> much has been said of just, you know, how public participation and how redistricting has happened in past cycles. Um, it is true, certainly, that redistricting has long been done behind the curtain, a la the Wizard of Oz. Um, technology has changed, um, and access to that technology has changed. There are all kinds of new um, open source, online, free softwares that allow the public to monitor and to participate in the redistricting process like it never happened before. Um, but here's the thing, regardless of what political party has been in power over the decades in which redistricting has, has regularly been happening, the one constant has been that redistricting has been a tool used to undermine black voices in the political process. Whether it was by cracking them, failing to create opportunity districts in violation of the Voting Rights Act, um, to racial gerrymandering, to partisan gerrymandering, because targeting black voters uh, assists the Republican uh, majority right now in entrenching its power because of how uh, black voters traditionally have been tending to vote in, in state legislative races anyway, in congressional races. This is, this is all part of a system of white supremacy that cannot be excused by saying, what we're doing this cycle is fine because 20 years ago, Democrats did it behind closed doors. It's never been right. It's never been okay. Um, folks have been trying to um, come up with a judiciable, uh, a justiciable or a manageable standard for judges to um, judge what is too much politics in redistricting for decades. And the political science has finally shown up. I mean, in the last five to 10 years, the political science has offered a number of ways 
um, to measure extreme gerrymandering, um, frequently using computers running millions and millions of simulations to show that you never by accident get this kind of extreme um, result. And you never by accident get these the destruction of all of these performing black crossover districts. Like this doesn't happen by accident. And that's not to say computers should draw the maps either, but um, the reason why I think the, it's a red herring to talk about what happened 20 years ago is we did this on, it was also done on uh, overhead projectors <laughs> mostly 20 years ago, right? The, the technology to, um, the technology and the um, political science have advanced both in creating the perfect gerrymander and allowing us to fight it. But there is no such thing. They used to call it a dummy mander where you would try and draw a gerrymander and it didn't work. Those don't exist anymore. People develop these really um, predictive political indexes um, to use in drawing maps and they can draw lines so artfully um, as to be certain how that district is going to perform. Um, so times change. We, we operate differently now in a world of cell phones than we did before. And, and um, we need we need to acknowledge that this has never been right. And it doesn't mean it's right now. Well, let me just say, you know, the, 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 there's this uh, legal distinction that's been made between uh, racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering. Uh, one is uh, more acceptable to the court than the uh, other, uh, but with uh, the, the reality of uh, African-American voter participation, is that really a uh, difference without a distinction? That's right. I, I think it is a difference without a distinction, and in fact, I think we do our uh, the cause harm by not making sure that we're really articulating the relationship between the, the two. And if you look at, for example, Guilford County in the new congressional map, Guilford County is cracked into three. And we looked at Guilford County during this litigation and we looked at it with the partisan shading underneath to understand what it did to Democratic voters. And we looked at it with the Black voting age population shading underneath to look at what it did to Democratic first to Democratic voters and to Black voters. And it's the same. It cracks uh, Black voters who vote for Democrats but it, in Guilford County, but it cracks Black voters into three congressional districts, one anchored out in Boone, <laughs> um, which is a stretch, right? Talk, but there, as much as we might argue about Oh, community of communities of interests are in the eye of the beholder. It it takes a, a lot of um, chutzpah to say Boone and uh, downtown Greensboro are a, a community of interests. So, what it does is it creates these districts and strands black voters in these three different districts and undermines their political voice in a place where it, the history of black voting and black organizing in Guilford County really means something like this is this is a this has been one of our the key spaces in North Carolina history where um, black activists have 
have been arrested, have been hosed, stood up um, to, to have their voices heard. And for that specific area to be um, to have such um, violence committed on how those district lines are drawn in that area, um, that means something and it means something painful and it, it sends a strong message about what those line drawers think about black political power. Um, and so, I, you know, like they, it is, in my opinion, impossible to talk about partisan gerrymandering without talking about racial gerrymandering and racial discrimination. The Southern strategy was an intentional one. And it's, you know, politics change. Um, we see political party realignment. Um, but but the regardless of political party realignment over time, it's it's anti-black sentiment and and black voters who are the target of unfair line drawing regardless. And we have to name that and understand that um, part of avoiding uh, political entrenchment that is going to be completely immune to the work of voters, to the will of voters, is understanding the, the racial underpinnings of why, why folks try to entrench themselves in, in power, why they try to silence voters. Um, it, in our history, it has been because of the color of those voters' skin. Attorney Riggs, so you mentioned the cracking, and, and there's another way in which their uh, folks try to dilute Black political voices kind of stacking and crunching all of them into the single district. Can you talk about the the two, those two approaches? I'm, I'm not sure that, um, I know there are some folks that don't fully understand and appreciate how it is that the Black vote, even if you have a majority in a, in a particular community, can be divided or crunched into one such that the political voice is undermined. Yeah, so I'll stick with the congressional map because there are Examples of both. Um, first, I'll say cracking and packing are sort of, um, they come hand in hand, right? If you're going to pack voters to limit their voice, you usually end up cracking them somewhere too. They're strategies that frequently work in conjunction with each other. But um, the congressional district drawn in Mecklenburg County is a great example of packing. Mecklenburg County is too big for just one congressional district, so we knew it needed another congressional district. Um, Mecklenburg is uh, disproportionately African-American compared to the state, um, heavily Democratic, was the reason essentially along with the triangle that North Carolina got a another congressional district. And what the legislature did was they packed black voters and democrats into one district that is, is essentially a circle in the middle of mecklenburg county the district uh currently representative represented by representative alma adams and then everything left over around the edges of mecklenburg they cut up and stranded in sort of more suburban rural districts where you could have had essentially Two, two Mecklenburg districts, a non-packed version of this map would have had two Mecklenburg districts that were had significant black populations and might have elected two black uh, members of Congress and would have been two Democratic districts. But instead, they make this very heavily black, heavily 
Democratic district and pack those voters in um, rather than drawing what would barely reflect the population um, of Mecklenburg County. And each of those the sort of leftovers outside that packed district will all be in Republican dominated districts. Um, so, you know, just just down I-85, you see, you know, from the cracking in Greensboro, you see the packing in Mecklenburg. Um, and, you know, there's there's sort of those are the, the words I think that are most familiar with folks. But I think if you look at the damage done to the congressional district out east, you understand how nuanced um, the attacks on black political power can be. So uh, the congressional district out east, long been represented uh, by uh, Congressman G.K. Butterfield, was the only underpopulated congressional district uh, when we got the census data back. So it needed to add, it, it needed to, even with the 14th congressional district, that uh, con congressional district out east needed to add geography and population. But instead of just taking that district and adding to it, they took out Greenville. They took out most of Wayne County. Um, they took out heavily black areas out of that district and added Person and Caswell and started stretching out towards the triad with these mo more white counties, taking out uh, disproportionately black counties and adding um, more heavily white counties. And what that meant was everyone considers that district a toss-up district. Um, it is not a guaranteed Democratic district, especially because Representative um, G.K. Butterfield has um, announced his retirement. And we know that racially polarized voting in Eastern North Carolina is still problematic. So the chances of a black, uh, a black preferred candidate being elected from that district have diminished terribly and would have never um, passed if we'd still had Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in place. So this wasn't exactly packing or cracking, but it's really manipulative line drawing. And it's really inexplicable by anything other than an attempt to undermine that district. Um, so line drawing can be very, um, you, you know, when you are not, when line drawers don't offer you a reason why or a valid reason why that an underpopulated district should have, you know, have heavily black areas removed from it. Um, it should certainly set off some some alarm bells. And we see this over and over again in the state Senate map. There was a choice of two clusters up in northeast North Carolina. Um, clusters are ways of grouping counties together to minimize um, the dividing of counties. And it's something that our, the North Carolina Supreme Court talked about in um, litigation in the 2000s. But they, they had a choice between two clusters, um, and one would have um, would have produced two Republican um, senators, and the other one would have produced one Republic, Republican senator and one Black Democratic senator. And guess which one they picked? In their quote-unquote race-blind redistricting, they picked the one that destroyed a functioning Black crossover district, and you didn't need to have any racial demographics displayed on any screen 
to know that removing Halifax County, removing Warren County from a Senate, just the Senate district that currently elects uh, uh, Senator Bazemore, that that would severely impact the ability of black voters to elect their candidate of choice. Um, Senator Dan Blue had some really compelling testimony about that. It's like, you want us to put our head in the sand and ignore the obvious. Like you don't get to where you get sitting in this building and having the title in front of your name. You don't get there by being stupid about North Carolina demographics. We know that you know, because we know. Um, and it's just, it, it's offensive and it's it's frustrating. And that's what we're trying to get the North Carolina Supreme Court to understand. We wanted a, a fix for extreme partisan gerrymandering, but this, the legislature's, you know, insistence that it, it has to pretend like it's drawing race blind um, leads nowhere good and is inconsistent with this leg- with this legislature's obligations under the state constitution um, to provide uh, black voters equal protection under the law. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. Uh, We're continuing our discussion with uh, Attorney Alice Riggs about the North Carolina redistricting uh, process. We're going to take our break uh, right now. Thank you for staying with us uh, up to this point and hope that you will continue as we uh, move into the uh, concluding portion of uh, this uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. Okay, we're back. Uh, we are continuing our conversations with uh, Attorney uh, Allison Briggs, who is the uh, co-executive director and chief counsel for voting rights with the uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice, and uh, is the uh, lead litigator uh, in the present case uh, pending uh, before the uh, before the court and uh, a, a Wake County uh, panel of judges. Uh, just issued an opinion uh, which seemingly supported the plaintiff's claims of uh, partisan or extreme partisan gerrymandering, obviously with a a racial uh, impact. And uh, now that that, uh, plaintiff's group uh, will be in the process of appealing that. So can you kind of talk about, uh, Attorney, uh, Riggs, the, uh, the, the, the specific claims raised before the, uh, the street judge panel and what the, 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 these judges determined the facts to be. 
Sure. So there were three main buckets of claims. One that uh, these plans, the congressional and state legislative redistricting plans represented extreme uh, partisan gerrymanders, pro-Republican partisan gerrymanders that would be durable and non-responsive no matter what kind of turnout or swing election we had in the state. And those claims were brought under the Article 1, uh, Section 19, our free, um, our elect, uh, equal protection clause under the state constitution and North Carolina's free elections clause, which doesn't have a counterpart in the federal constitution. So that's the first bucket. The second bucket was that these maps, um, and particularly how some of the districts drawn were intentionally racially discriminatory, again, in violation of our state equal protection guarantee. Um, in a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court suggested that the intentional destruction of a functioning minority crossover district would violate the Equal Protection Clause. So what is a functioning um, minority crossover district? These would be districts like um, uh, the one that Senator Baysmore or Representative um, Butterfield are running from. They're districts where um, there's a strong black population, usually between 40 and 45 percent, and there's just enough white crossover voting to ensure that black candidates have the ability to elect their candidate of choice. The Federal Voting Rights Act doesn't compel the drawing of crossover districts, but legislatures are allowed to, and they're also not allowed to intentionally destroy it. And so we think that um, their race, quote unquote, race blind redistricting was just a, um, a, a mask, a, a, a distraction to allow them to dismantle a, a large number of performing African-American districts uh, that were not majority black districts. The third claim is that the um, North Carolina legislature or the legislative leadership violated the state constitution um, in what we call the whole county provision parts of our state constitution, there's also embedded a, a state supremacy clause. Um, and when the North Carolina Supreme Court interpreted the whole county provision and the state supremacy clause in the 2000 redistricting cycle, they said to the legislature, here's, here's the process by which you draw maps that allows you to harmonize federal law and state law. First, you draw any districts that are compelled by the Voting Rights Act. And um, shockingly, the North Carolina legislature got it wrong from step one, because they did no, did no analysis to see what, if any, districts were compelled by the Voting Rights Act. And that process is important. Um, we believe that process is important. We're not saying that the legislature needed to draw majority Black districts every single place it could like it did in 2011, um, that often would be packing. But we also know that racially polarized voting and patterns of how voters vote change over time. Mm -hmm. And we have at the Southern Coalition and doing our election protection work, we have observed in the last five years a marked increase in racially polarized voting in some parts of the state, particularly Eastern North Carolina. The national hateful rhetoric um, 
has bled down into um, how how voters vote and who decides to turn out. Um, and so we saw um, a different electorate in 2016 and 2020 than we've seen before, which means that uh, racially polarized voting studies done before 2011 have no meaningful import right now. So um, we that's the third bucket, that they violated the, the clear um, and uh, unequivocal instructions from the North Carolina Supreme Court um, in, about how you go about doing redistricting. Um, so we saw a lot of testimony ab about um, the math of gerrymandering and how to sort of suss it out. But we also heard from um, we also heard from Pro Professor Jim Lalutis, who talked about how redistricting has been a tool um, to suppress Black political power uh, throughout the years, and how this is the natural and obvious continuation of that pattern. Uh, we heard from legislators um, who, you know, essentially admitted lying to the public and to their colleagues, which, you know, allows us to draw inferences of bad intentions. And we think that that record um, is well made. Now, what the the opinion, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but what the opinion that we got yesterday, which was 260 pages, it was it was very dismissive of uh, the race-based claims, but we believe the record is made. Um, on the partisan gerrymandering claims, it, it was a strange opinion to read because it was almost as if I was reading an opinion that would result in a win, would result in a court striking down these plans because the court said, there's no doubt, essentially said, there's no doubt that these maps represent extreme and durable pro-Republican gerrymanders. And it went through all the expert testimony and it said, yep, this this is true. This is accurate. This is true. And then at the end, they just threw their hands up and said, um, like the U.S. Supreme Court did, there's nothing the courts can do about it. But the problem is, is they cite to the U.S. Supreme Court case, the Rucho case for that proposition. But in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court said, look, state constitutions are different than the federal constitution. They have different they have different provisions like our free elections clause. They have more um, protective equal protection clauses and state courts get to interpret the state constitution. So there's a real disconnect there by citing to Rucho. Um, because that was essentially one of the reasons that, or, or defenses that the majority opinion in Rucho offered was, well, we're not saying there's no remedy for this. It just has to be a state by state remedy. So what's the next step? So, um, the notices of appeal have all been filed in the three cases, um, we expect when the when the North Carolina Supreme Court um, on the emergency review in December issued an order pushing the primaries back to May, they said to the trial court, you need to have a decision out by January 11th and um, plaintiffs need to file or parties need to file their notices of appeal within two days. 
And then we'll set a um, expedited briefing and argument schedule uh, immediately thereafter. So we expect, you know, any any minute, any day to get that order from the North Carolina Supreme Court. Right now, the the machinery of election administration for the May primary is set to start sort of in the middle of February. So there is not much time um there's not much time for this to happen. So we expect it to happen quickly. And then ultimately the North Carolina Supreme Court will be the the body to decide whether North Carolinians actually do get to have a voice um, in who gets elected and that, that, um, it, that our constitution does not allow the drawing of district lines that cement in a political outcome that's guaranteed to to be stuck for the entire decade. You know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has become more conservative uh, over the past uh, couple of years and seemingly uh, have, uh, has adopted the uh, uh, position that uh, they don't want anything to do with this uh, uh, election process. Uh, what is your sense about the North Carolina Supreme Court. Have they been uh, uh, rendered punch drunk uh, on these uh, on this issue thus far? Well, I take heart in their order from December, the North Carolina Supreme Court. The, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court has not had a ton of election cases end up in front of it, at least not in its current composition. But um, I take heart that their December 8th order signaled that they understood the gravity of this, um, that they wanted a record to review, and that they took seriously their their need to provide um, sort of an ultimate guidance for lower courts about what the North Carolina Constitution demands in this situation. Um, but ultimately, that's, that's no guarantee, right? Um, I think that I certainly never approach any any decision as as guaranteed uh, one way or the other, and we have a we'll have to make our case and um, be as compelling as possible. But there is time to get this right before the twenty twenty two elections. We don't we're not condemned to repeat last decade where we had uh, election after election under unconstitutional maps and unconstitutionally elected representatives making law and policy for this state, law and policy that hurt our environment, that hurt our citizens, um, that perpetuated economic and environmental injustice and racism. Uh, we're not condemned to that. We can fix it now. But um, I also know that I, I think that, like I said in the beginning, not to end on a, a Debbie Downer note, but even even if there if we were so lucky as to persuade the North Carolina Supreme Court that the North Carolina Constitution does provide more protection than the federal constitution and that race blind redistricting is wrong under the North Carolina Constitution, I wouldn't expect that to be the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for, for sharing um so much wisdom and insight and, and for all the hard work that you do and your team continues to do in this space. What can the community do 
So those of us who are not, you know, even if we're lawyers, not actively practicing in voting rights, or if we are, you know, not lawyers at all, but we are concerned community members who want to make sure that our political voices are heard. What can we do to help in this effort? Yeah, so I mean, it's it, it, one of the things that the president said that, in all frankness, was frustrating to me in sort of an explanation earlier as to why he was less than aggressive in, in pushing for federal voting rights legislation was that we can out-organize gerrymanders. And I think that's very dismissive. Um, and I, I was um, gratified to hear a, a, a different tone in his presentation in Georgia yesterday. But that being said, I, so I don't agree with it. I think it's condescending. And it may be what we have if the law doesn't provide the remedies. Um, like there's always been a gap between the injustices that need remedying and what the law provides as a remedy. And so, you know, joining your local NAACP, joining your local League of Women Voters, getting organized, getting um, getting outraged, uh, sharing what's happening, being real clear with people about what the reason that these lines are being drawn the way they're drawn is because they are um, threatened by your political voice. So I don't mean to reify what I think was a condescending statement, and hopefully the law will provide a remedy this time. We still need federal legislation, and I'll beat that drum all day long. Uh, we need to restore the Voting Rights Act with the John Lewis um, Act, and we need the Freedom to Vote Act. But um, until we get those things, until the courts recognize that this that that manipulative manipulative line drawing um, uh, plants the seeds for our the death of our democracy, um, all we have is each other. Um, and so organizing and working together and understanding the districts that you're that you live in and why it was drawn, and who's sitting it out, like who is who's sitting it out because they understandably are like, this is rigged, why bother? Um, and talk to them about um, the getting involved at the local level, right? Looking at building political power and interest at the local level, if not, because um, they're not wrong about the rigged nature of districts at the state legislative and congressional level, but um, being engaged is something that everyone can do um, and monitoring um, the litigation. It's, it's in the news, read up on it, listen to resources like this, this radio show to learn more um, and stay, stay educated and engaged in what's happening. Well, thank you so much for, for being our guest. Um, this was great information, great advice to close on that I feel, you know, optimistic, more optimistic. Uh, it can be incredibly frustrating, but we appreciate those closing remarks and suggestions. We are an, out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Attorney Allison Riggs. She is the co-executive director and chief counsel for voting rights with the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.